We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God our Creator, not our government. I believe that Scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning and happy Friday. And uh, I have been very excited to bring on uh, this first guest, my good friend Will Chamberlain, who I actually uh, have known since my days in D.C., and we are both refugees from D.C. to the great state of Florida. And so uh, Will is a, a lawyer, senior counsel at the Internet Accountability Project, and also our good friends at the Article 3 Project. And you will also know the Article 3 Project because uh, Mike Davis, who's a lawyer who is uh, free frequently on this program as well is uh, the founder of the Article 3 Project and uh, and both of, of them, Will and uh, Mike Davis, uh, post prolifically, I think, on social media commenting on uh, law, the Constitution, and other things. And so, uh, Will, good morning and thanks so much for joining. Oh, great to be with you, Jenna. Yeah, well, um, I wanted to uh, to bring you on, and I know we've been kind of waiting for this interview for a while to get your take on um, some of the constitutional issues that are surrounding all of these cases uh, relating to President Trump going forward into the 2024 election. Um, in my view, this is a very critical moment uh, for precedent, for constitutional analysis, and whether anyone is for Trump, against Trump, it's not really about Trump. It's about what presidential immunity should be. It's about what ballot access should be and uh, whether the executive branch and secretaries of state can just unilaterally kick someone off the ballot in their own estimation that they determine, well, you've committed insurrection, whatever that means. Um, these are critical issues that I think will be foundational moving forward. So let's start uh, with the immunity case and uh, what that portends in terms of where the Supreme Court might go in contemplating what presidential immunity means. So, yeah, I mean, where that case is, the D.C. Circuit issued its ruling, um, I think, last week or early this week. I forget exactly what day. But they basically said that President Trump does not have immunity for his official acts because there is no immunity whatsoever for presidents for that for their official acts when it comes to criminal prosecution. Now that might seem sort of, you know, it, that might not might not seem unreasonable to just a layperson hearing it. Like, oh, why should you have immunity from criminal prosecution? You've broken the law. But it's it's a little more complicated than that. Um, because the president is the sole essentially is the executive branch while he's there and has the power over the military and has all sorts of different powers over executive agencies and controlling what they do. It's not as simple as saying if, if, if you apply the criminal law to the president without thinking about how the president is distinct, you end up with situations where almost every president you could think of could be prosecuted nominally under the criminal law. 
the most obvious example of this would be um, President Obama, who used drone strikes to, in the course of the war on terror, and killed an American citizen, um, uh, the young Al-Awlaki, I think in Yemen when at, at one point. If the criminal law, if there's no immunity for his official acts, then he could be prosecuted tomorrow for murder in, in federal court. Um, and I don't think the the idea that that would be constraining on presidents is pretty obvious, right? They, if they could, if any prosecutor anywhere in the country could just wake up one day and decide, I want to prosecute a former president for political reasons, well, they'll have plenty of ways to do so if there's no immunity for official acts. And the other right, reason so then, that it's sort of, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, well, and then who would who would run for president then? Because they know that they're just opening themselves up to political opposition as soon as they leave office. And, and the uh, the, the biggest issue to me with th- this opinion from the D.C. Circuit was the idea that immunity only attaches for the duration of office and then it lapses as soon as they leave office. Um, to me, where I hope the Supreme Court goes with this is to distinguish between official acts that are political in nature because the executive branch is inherently political. Um, they're, they're policy derivatives and, and, and that's that constitutes every action that an official uh, would take, but then contrasting that from non-official acts. And I can see an argument, and I think this is actually where this should go, that if he would, if President Trump was making these alleged acts in his capacity as private citizen candidate Trump, then there is an argument that, that no, I mean, anything that he would, would do that is outside the scope of his official duties that is subject to potential prosecution because he couldn't just go out and do anything he wants because he's in the office of president. So I think there should be a distinguishment between official acts and non-official acts rather than this lapse in immunity covering official acts. Correct. I I think that's a a pretty good way of looking at things. Like, I mean, and obviously I think that one of the the Trump team's position is that basically presidents have Absolute, should have absolute immunity for their official acts that they are not impeached and convicted for, right? That would be the exception. So if Congress, in their wisdom, decides you need to to convict you of something, then you can be prosecuted for it. And that, you know, th- there was a lot of talk about the hypothetical of what if the president ordered SEAL Team 6 to kill his political opponent, you know, ridiculous hypotheticals like that. Well, the Trump team's position ac- accounts for that because, uh, a, like, a president who just went crazy uh, and decided to start using the military for obvious, like, absurd things would just be impeached on the spot, and that would open up the possibility of criminal prosecution. But, yeah, I think, I think you're, you're getting at what, you know, the Trump team is getting at, that the, the, fact, the idea that immunity would, would attach while you're president but then lapse afterwards is not really very good at all because it means that the moment you leave office, you'll get prosecuted for all the stuff you did while you were in office. So that doesn't work. And... I mean, it was just, it was remarkable reading the opinion. Everybody, you know, the lefty legal commentators instantly calling it brilliant and genius. And you read it and you're like, wait a second. I mean, this isn't an opinion that says what President Trump did was in his private capacity. This is an opinion that says no president has immunity for official acts once they're not in office. That's a, that's a very aggressive position. And it's also very difficult to reconcile with the Supreme Court's holdings on civil immunity and immunity from civil damages for president. Um, Nixon v. Fitzgerald said that in that circumstance, they have absolute immunity. So you, you're going to end up in a situation if if the Supreme Court does what the left wants here, where a, a former president could be prosecuted for murder tomorrow, but the family couldn't sue him for wrongful death. You know, it's, it's a, that's a very, very bizarre, uh, you know, 
kind of weird outcome that I don't think the Supreme Court's going to like. And so I strongly suspect that the Supreme Court is going to take this case and reverse the D.C. Circuit. Yeah, I, I think that they will, too, and uh, particularly on those grounds. And we also have uh, the the opinion in Clinton versus Jones that Clinton, while he was in office, could be held civilly liable for acts that uh, that were committed prior to attaining the office. And so there is this. And so obviously that would be in his private capacity or in um, perhaps under color of you know some other office because he was the former governor of Arkansas, you know, some of those things. Um, but but there have has to be a distinguishment, and there always has been in our law and precedent and tradition of uh, government agents, um, even like police officers that have qualified immunity. I mean, there are different things that if they're under the color of their office, then that uh, can have some immunity rather than maybe an off-duty police officer that uh, that, that may carry out some other act that, no, they're just a regular citizen at that point and they're treated like that. And so this opinion to me just didn't make a lot of sense. And and you're right, Will Chamberlain, that uh, that the left was just lauding this as, you know, one of the best legal opinions, wh- whatever, because Trump lost. And on the flip side, a lot of conservatives, unfortunately, do the same thing. When Trump wins for whatever reason, they'll say, oh, this is the greatest opinion just because of the outcome. But as conservatives, uh, we need to be much more concerned about the precedent, what it actually says, not just the outcome for uh, these specific parties. And I think that's the critical distinction that too often both sides of the aisle miss. I, I agree. Um, I, th- I, I think that's true. And, it, it, you know, it's just interesting. I mean, it, I've, I came into probably, I didn't know much about presidential immunity, and I came in when I heard about it skeptical. And then I just read the cases and was like, no, actually, <laughs> the Trump, Trump, has the right, Trump has the better of this argument by, by a substantial margin. Um, and and so yeah, I think that I, I also think there's a, there's another interesting point, which is that people there's there's some lefty legal commentators out there saying, oh, the the Supreme Court doesn't need to do anything here; it shouldn't grant uh, certiorari. The problem they have is that Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to grant certiorari before judgment months ago, right? You know, Jack right. Smith is like on a on a warpath to try and get this case tried before the election, and so he went to the Supreme Court and argued, you shouldn't even let the D.C. Circuit hear this. You should hear it right now so we can get this immunity issue resolved as soon as possible. Supreme Court said, no, this can go through the normal process. Um, but it also it now it puts them in a terrible position where they, maybe they are going to try and argue against certiorari when they previously argued for it three months ago. It's wild. Right. And well, and, and this just shows all of the different tactics that uh, different lawyers and, and um, offices like the DOJ will take just to get the outcome that they prefer, because uh, and this is the distinguishment, of course, is, you know, you and I know, well, uh, from from lawyers that when you are the advocate, you are trying to use every tool available to get the outcome for your particular uh, office or your client. Uh, but this is why we are supposed to have impartial judges and justices that are much more concerned on the appellate level about precedent and on the trial level fundamental fairness to both sides and applying the law um, with impartiality so that they're not just looking at how to game the system, which is you know, which is how lawyers play the game. I mean, and that's that's okay as long as they're staying within the margins of the law and the Constitution. Then, um, then they should be zealously advocating for their position and and their side. Um, but hopefully, the Supreme Court will take uh, this view. And um, and now we turn to uh, the ballot 
issue, and that was just argued uh, last week before the Supreme Court, so that had been accepted. And this was a wild um, oral argument mm-hmm. to me. I mean, just you know, some of the directions that it went um, in terms of some of the justices, including uh, Justice Jackson, that that I thought asked um, some some really pointed questions, actually, to the the, the lawyers representing. Um, Colorado in terms of trying to kick Trump off the ballot um, and and really being very concerned that um, history and precedent, uh, you know, maybe not on their side here. Um, so did you listen to the arguments and overall your thoughts on this case? Yeah, I actually did listen to the arguments. Um, I, I I was surprised at how badly it went for the challengers, I thought they might get at least a somewhat favorable favorable reception from the the liberal justices, and they didn't at all. Um, it went very very badly for them, and I think there's a, there's a number of problems. But I mean, Clarence Thomas asked the first question of the the Democrat of the Democrats of the call people representing Colorado, and asked them like, so basically, do you have any evidence that uh, you know at the you know contemporaneous evidence of States disqualifying candidates for federal office on the basis of the 14th Amendment, and there was no contemporary evidence of that. And then the point that Thomas made, which I thought was really, that was, that was particularly persuasive to the liberal justices, is that the 14th Amendment was all about the federal government gaining power over the states to force them to follow federal law in the aftermath of the Civil War, saying, no, you, you need to impose equality, n- none of this you can't just, you know, you have to let black people vote, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so his point was, if the whole amendment was about reducing state power and granting the federal government power, then why is that a place we would look for this novel exercise of state power to influence the federal government? And I think that's very persuasive to the liberal justices, because as a general concept, they've been, they're not friendly to states' rights the liberal justices. They, they, they believe in federal power to remedy discrimination and harm. So uh, I think they were particularly hostile. And, and there was a, a question from Justice Kagan, which indicated how hostile, like, she said, why, why should one state get to dictate to the entire country who the candidates are? Because, I mean, that's effectively what that means. If I mean, presidential elections are close. If it comes down to one state kicking a candidate off the ballot and then basically having a default win for the other state. Why does why does the whole country have to be bound by the decision of that one state? And then there was one final major point that I thought was very persuasive, which was, okay, so each individual state can make its own determination on what constitutes an insurrection. Are we going to have if we agree to your position, Colorado? Are we going to have to be in court every year resolving these in disputes about what constitutes insurrection? And we're going to have to come up with a whole body of case law. To, to make a determination about when people be kicked off the ballot. And they, the Supreme Court doesn't want to do that. It's a ton of work, and it directly involves them very heavily in the political process. So I expect, listening to that oral argument, I expect at least an 8-1 on behalf of, in, in favor of Trump, um, on the grounds that states just don't have the authority to do this on their own. They do not have the authority on their own initiative to kick candidates for federal office on the ballot if Congress doesn't authorize them to do so. 
And I'm speaking with Will Chamberlain, who is an attorney and senior counsel at the Internet Accountability Project and the Article 3 Project. You can follow Article 3 Project at Article the Number 3 Project. And uh, that that's a great organization founded by uh, our good friend uh, Mike Davis, who's a, is a frequent guest on this show. And I think, Will, um, you were just highlighting why Clarence Thomas is a national treasure. And, and I love um, how his mind works in terms of his analysis and the application of um, some of the the, uh, the history and the legislative history of some of these amendments. And that was brought out and kind of fleshed out even by some of uh, the leftist judges on the bench, which I found surprising. Um, uh, you know, just because of the politics in this, I would... I'm skeptical that it's going to be as solid as an 8-1. I, I hope that it is because I think this is a very clear issue um, because just the absolute madness that would happen if if one state could kick off, you know, this candidate or that. I mean, we would have this kind of piecemeal of of how to have a presidential election that is completely incoherent, not cohesive. And I just don't see the Supreme Court going there. But again, there is so much hostility toward Trump as an individual and as an individual candidate from the left. They're going to be hard pressed to have an opinion that supports his arguments. Um, I hope that they will set that aside. Like I've been asking our audience to do, you know, set aside what, what you think about Trump either way. Look at the precedent. I hope they are able to do that. But um, we are already out of time. Great analysis. Really appreciate it. You can follow Will Chamberlain at Will Chamberlain on X. And uh, he sometimes gets even as snarky as I do on social media. So you definitely want to follow him. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Last year, because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saw over 58,000 babies saved. Thank you to all who made this possible. Let's celebrate these precious babies. When Charlotte found out she was pregnant, she was seven weeks along. In the back of her mind, she thought abortion was the best solution. But after hearing her baby's heartbeat and seeing her beautiful baby on an ultrasound, she chose life. Her heart is filled with gratitude for all of you who made this possible. Each of these babies are truly miraculous, and every day, Preborn's Preborn celebrates 200 miracles. $28 a month can be the difference between the life and the death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection that doubles the baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And we're talking about precedent in the law and always having to be concerned about the uh, the unintended consequences or the way that laws can be applied in future circumstances and instances, not just to the parties in the case and that uh, the particular set of facts that is immediately before the court. Uh, we now turn to Florida and um, a very interesting proposal 
for libel laws. And there is an op-ed in Florida Politics. You can go to this at floridapolitics.com. That is actually by um, a good friend of mine, Drew Steele. He is a radio host um, in Florida, and I've known him for years. Um, well before I moved to Florida, I've been a guest on his show many, many times. Um, he, he's a great commentator, um, is a homeschool father. And uh, his op-ed here is why Florida's proposed libel laws undermine conservative principles. So he goes on to say, Florida has led the way in defending freedom of conscience and expanding educational choice. It would be a mistake to stand at liberty on its head and, cru- and in a crusade against biased reporters and pundits. So uh, last Last year and even the year before, um, this issue had arisen, you know, well before Governor DeSantis's uh, presidential run. There was a lot of talk about this particular bill, which uh, the governor held a roundtable. And you can actually go back and watch that on um, his social media channels. And that was the one that had, you know, the banner um, truth uh, behind him. And it was a roundtable with um, several First Amendment attorneys and discussion about what constitutes uh, libel and defamation in our courts. And and really, this is an effort, um, I think, to uh, eventually eventually overturn a New York Times versus Sullivan. Um, And that that case, um, and I'm and I'm pulling this up here, uh, New York Times versus Sullivan, um, just to get the uh, when was this? In yeah, in 1964. I was forgetting the exact date here, but this was a landmark um, U.S. Supreme Court decision ruling that freedom of speech protections in the First Amendment restrict the ability of public officials to sue for defamation. And so the decision held that if a plaintiff in a defamation lawsuit is a public official or candidate for public office, not only do they have to prove the normal elements of defamation, uh, which includes publication of a false and defamatory statement to a third party, they also have to prove that the statement was made with quote-unquote actual malice, meaning that the defendant either knew the statement was false or recklessly disregarded whether or not it might be uh, false. And so this has precluded a lot of uh, public officials and and particularly um, people like like Donald Trump, for example, who you'll remember um, sued CNN, the New York Times, and um, and another outlet, um, I think it was MSNBC, for um, some of what he termed as as defamatory publications, uh, criticizing him. A lot of those were kicked out based on the New York Times versus Sullivan precedent. And what constitutes a public figure now is very interesting with the rise of social media influencers. And a lot of conservative commentators are suggesting that New York Times versus Sullivan um, should at least be reconsidered and this um, really this kind of category all precedent of actual malice is such a high standard that it's virtually impossible to hold accountable people who do actually publish false and defamatory statements, um, even if they are members of the press, whether uh, that's a traditional publication outlet or um, that's just a regular broadcaster. But the danger here, I think, um, even even with all that considered, because you know people who publish knowingly false and defamatory things should be held accountable. But the danger here and the precedent that I think um, Florida's proposed libel law that it, that is attempting to kind of go after and target New York Times versus Sullivan, the danger here is that critical commentary that really is genuinely an opinion will then uh, force a lot of conservative commentators to be even more careful what they critique. Now, we're 
opinion is very different under the law than a defamatory statement. And the law is very clear about that. Um, if I say that, for example, that someone is stupid, um, that that's a matter of opinion. That's not a provably true or false statement. It's a characterization. It's a matter of opinion, right? But if there's something that is factually provably false as a, as a matter of a factual statement, that could then get into the area of false and defamatory. And, and then there are some kind of hybrid statements that it's, it has some facts, but it's couched in, in terms of an opinion, which is a lot of times where the press will go to say, well, this is really just an opinion piece. But um, Mark Stein, who um, those of you who listen to Rush Limbaugh, um, you know, back in the day and also um, Tucker Carlson's show will remember Mark Stein as one of the fill-in guests. Um, he recently, uh, just last week, had a... Um, a D.C. court make a finding of defamation for a 250-word blog piece that was criticizing this climate activist. And he had a $1 million uh, verdict against him for damages for this piece just because the climate activist um, apparently sued for uh, defamation. That, in my opinion, was uh, was not a good outcome, and that should have been protected by the First Amendment. But this is where, then, the way that the courts filter down and narrow or broaden some of these protections that are clearly enumerated in our Bill of Rights can become watered down vastly. And so where I think the Florida legislation is very, very dangerous is that there is a huge potential to vastly water down or infringe upon or even foreclose a lot of the constitutionally protected rights of journalists or just speakers in public um, on making critical statements of some public officials, which is actually the job of the press. Um, it's not the job of the press or of commentators to just be cheerleaders or mouthpieces for one party or another or one candidate or another. That's why we have political action committees. That's why they have campaigns. That's why they have spokespeople. Um, those are the people who are actually uh, titled with the campaigns or the candidates or the officials' public office. They can be champions for those people. It's It's the job of of communicators and of the press and of commentators to have opinions, to make those critiques, and they should be able to do that without fear of reprisal. So um, this op-ed, again, is in floridapolitics.com, and it's titled, Why Florida's Proposed Libel Laws Undermine Conservative Principles, and the bill is HB uh, 757 and Senate Bill 1780. And it is my hope that Governor DeSantis will not support this legislation, at least in its current form. I think this gives a way too much opportunity for uh, some um, attorneys and, um, and tort lawyers to just kind of jump in and attack the press. And it will have a definite chilling effect on commentators, um, especially if this goes further. But I've no doubt it would be litigated. And it looks like the target is to try to go after New York Times versus Sullivan. But with the current composition of the court, I'm not sure we get a better outcome than uh, New York Times versus Sullivan or if we really want to mess with that in terms of First Amendment guarantees. 
Well, turning now to another topic of great import uh, to the law and policy uh, is the discrimination against female, yes, actual females. We can definitely uh, distinguish the biological difference between men and women, uh, male and female, but the discrimination against female student athletes with the NCAA. So this headline coming from the Washington Examiner earlier this week, NCAA official resigns in protest of transgender policy that discriminate against female student athletes. So uh, William Bach III, or Bill Bach, as as, uh, he goes by the former general counsel of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, submitted his letter of resignation to NCAA President Charlie Baker last Friday, citing the college sports organization's policy to allow transgender men to to compete in women's sports as a primary reason for his departure. So uh, Bill Bach is an excellent attorney attorney and joins me now. So, uh, Bill, you know, th- this is a great decision. I-, I applaud you and commend you for taking a firm stance on this, and hopefully it will inspire others to do the same. Uh, what went into uh, your decision-making to resign? Thank you very much, Jenna. It's about fair competition for women, plain and simple. Uh, the-, the rules that the NCAA has in place right now are regressive. They discriminate against female student-athletes. They are, they're based on a false um, premise that has no valid scientific support that testosterone suppression uh, can, can make a male into a female and, and equalize the playing field. It's, it's not true. And, and so what we have right now at the NCAA is essentially institutionalized, authorized cheating, um, allowing men to compete against women when it's not fair uh, to women's detriment. I think that's discriminatory, and it, it was time for me to, to say I needed to, to depart the committee w- that I served on, which is supposed to be about ethical sport. And and you wrote in this letter, although I may not have agreed with the wisdom of every rule in the NCAA rulebook, I believed the intent behind the NCAA's rules was competitive fairness and protection of equal opportunities for student athletes. This conviction has changed as I have watched the NCAA double down on regressive policies which discriminate against female student athletes. Um, This is very well put, and I think there are a lot of uh, female student athletes, including um, most notably uh, Riley Gaines and others who have been, um, you know, really disadvantaged and opportunities taken away because men are competing in women's sports. Um, has the NCAA responded to this at all? Uh, no, they, they haven't responded to the content of my letter. I got um, a, an email the other day from the um, director of the committee that I served on, you know, thanking me for my service. But the, the NCAA's policies um, have, have only gotten worse over the last two years. And um, as, as you mentioned, Jenna, I think um, I was previously the general counsel for the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency and, and that deals with cheating in sport through the use of performance-enhancing drugs and was heavily involved as an attorney in the Lance Armstrong investigation and case. And I can tell you that the performance advantage that Lance Armstrong obtained through doping pales in comparison to the advantage that men 
um, competing in the female category have over over women. So this is um, unfortunately, I think, known by the the people that lead the NCAA and the people on the committees, at least on the committee that I was on. Many I had many conversations with university presidents, uh, athletic directors, um, people in the compliance departments at universities, and you know, there's there's a widespread knowledge uh, that that uh, it's not a level playing field when a boy competes against a girl, and um, there's massive scientific evidence um, for the the unfairness and even the safety concerns in certain sports. And um, yet nothing has been done. Um, and and so at that point, uh, you know, it became incumbent upon me to, to try to bring some attention to the issue. And I think it's something that, that all of us can do. Um, we're, whether you're a, a parent of a child competing at, at uh, a recreational level um, or have an, a position inside or outside of sport, uh, we all need to to kind of try to do the best we can to, to, to stop the insanity and stop the, um, the, the, the failure to, to uh, defend women's rights. Yeah, very well said. And I'm speaking with uh, Bill Bach, who's the former general counsel for the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency and uh, was formerly an, an NCAA official who has now resigned um, in protest of transgender policies that discriminate against female student athletes. And you mentioned, um, Bill, that uh, the NCAA knows um, that, that this is discriminatory. They know the unfair advantage um, against female student athletes. And uh, so, so do they simply not care, or what has been um, your uh, what they have communicated at least as to their rationale why they why they would put female students at such a disadvantage um, just to allow males to compete? They, they talk about um, trying to be fair and in, inclusive to um, transgender athletes. Uh, and, in the female category, that that means allowing those with male biology and male competitive advantage to compete against women. There's very little talk about what's fair for women, um, and so, you know, this uh, the um, advantage here goes to to the males that want to compete in, in the female category. They're they're being given all the accommodations, and women are simply being overlooked. I mean. It harkens back to the adoption of Title IX, the federal law that were, was supposed to give equal opportunity for women in education and in uh, college sports. And the NCAA fought Title IX tooth and nail for a decade. They didn't want women to have equal opportunity. And they've gone back. They've regressed. And, and they're, they're, fight, they're actively now fighting for the opportunities of um, male-bodied individuals uh, to compete against women and take uh, women's opportunities. Um, so there's, there's really no good explanation for what they're doing. They try to cloak it in a veneer of science, and, and that uh, um, pr- pr- very easily that you, just, you can poke the balloon, and, and the, the science is, is not – substantial. It doesn't support um, what uh, what the NCAA is trying to do. 
Yeah, and, and for the left being the so-called party of trust the science and, you know, science is this uh, this demigod, basically, that we all just have to, to follow, they're, they're certainly ignoring some basic biology here um, in favor of their manufactured uh, quote-unquote science that suggests that, that men can become women and under this uh, veneer, as, as you said, um, as well of, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, is there any... Uh, understanding or, or of maybe some some broader considerations of pressure from you know some leftist organizations that are on um, even the NCAA or any of these organizations that are catering to the transgender movement. Well, you know what? It's interesting. Of course, there are. Of course, there are leftist groups that are, that are pushing this very hard, and we, we see it in, in school districts around the country, and, and we see it at the collegiate level on, on college campuses. And I think that that's what's driving the fear of people at the NCAA to really speak up for the truth and stand for integrity. But um, it, it, it's important to know and understand that there are a lot of friends uh, to to the issue of women's rights across the political spectrum in in groups like the Women's Declaration International, um, the Women's Liberation Front, um, or organizations that consider themselves politically left and even describe themselves as radical feminists. Um, those organizations uh, have joined hands with conservative organizations, even filing. Uh, amicus briefs in in cases um, involving Title IX and this discriminatory uh, practice against women of uh, so-called transgender inclusion, and um, and they have they are staunch supporters from the left um, for uh, for uh, fighting discrimination against women in sport. Yeah, it's very interesting to see some of the overlap um, and some of the the allies that are being created among conservatives and you know some radical feminist groups, for example. Um, but this this all is such a fascinating issue. And again, the piece is in Washington Examiner. The headline is NCAA official resigns in protest of transgender policies that discriminate against female student athletes. You can read the hyperlink for the full letter from Bill Bach, um, my guest today. And Bill, thank you so much for your steadfastness to stand up for truth and uh, for women in sports. And we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods, since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get advantage from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. It all starts with a visit to chministries.org slash AFR. 
That's chministries.org slash AFR. Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health share ministry serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back, and I'd like to welcome in now Cedra Sarton, who is a marketing assistant with the American Family Association, and I'm so grateful to have her join today to explain to everyone who may not know what the Orange Letter campaign is for February. So Cedra, thanks so much, and uh, what's going on with our Orange Letter campaign? Uh, yeah, well, for the ones who are new and have not joined us for OLC before, um, there was a video that was released in 2015 of 21 Christians being beheaded in, on a beach in Egypt, and they were all wearing these orange jumpsuits. And from that, um, I think you as a believer and me as well, we thought, what can we do there? You know, you feel like I want to reach out to the people, their families and and what we were able to do that. So with this campaign, our listeners wrote letters and we had a ministry take those letters and translate them and take them to the families left behind by these Christians. And each year, AFR has taken the opportunity to reach out to a different country and um, let the let our brothers and sisters in Christ know that we love them and that we're praying for them. So we have we've sent letters to Syria, to North Korea and to Nigeria. And this year, our big focus is Russia. And, and this is wonderful to just take time to send uh, letters of encouragement and prayer to persecuted Christians. And, um, you know, I, I think that so often um, we in America are so focused on um, domestic policy, domestic issues, what we're facing, that sometimes it almost seems like um, we we just don't even know what other Christians are facing around the world. And with way more intense persecution than even what we're facing um, here in America. And I know that that is escalating and there are a lot of Christians that are very concerned about um, the direction America is heading. And I'm certainly one of those, but, um, but we do need to be cognizant of what's going on around the world. So, um, so Cedra, why is the focus uh, for this year specifically on persecuted Christians in Russia? Um, a lot of us, and I know you have as well, been fo- have been watching the war going on between Russia, Ukraine, and all of that that is going on. And we think about that from a political standpoint, which we should. As believers, we should definitely know what's going on in the world. Uh, but I, I don't think we sometimes think about our fellow believers that are in that area and what they are dealing with in the midst of all that. Um, so we have our friends at Global Outreach International. They're a ministry. They have missionaries all over the world. And they, uh, when I asked them what would be a good place to start, to start thinking of a country to focus on this year, this is one they pulled up because they have people on the ground that um, are facing persecution for their words. If they say anything that questions the government, that questions the war, that co- that questions the tactics the, that the military is using over there, they could be detained in, amongst other things. Yeah, and and Cedra, I think it's it is also so important that uh, we focus on the the persecuted Christians and what is actually uh, realistically happening on the ground for so many people, regardless of the politics and whether you know America should support financially the the war um, between Ukraine and Russia. You know, all of those things that are political considerations that we talk on this show daily about all of those things, and that's good to talk about. Um, all of those 
policies have real world impact on Christians that may or may not agree with what their federal headship uh, is is doing, what their uh, government is doing. And of course, as Christians, we know that our true eternal federal headship as as um, as people who are saved through the finished, complete work of Jesus Christ, we have a new federal head in the person of Jesus Christ. Um, we are no longer an Adam. We are in Christ. And that is a wonderful hope for eternity. And yet we are still here dealing with uh, civil government and dealing with mm-hmm. oftentimes things that we disagree with. And so regardless of what anyone thinks um, politically about the the, the the conflict and the war going on, um, Ukraine and Russia, we should be supporting persecuted Christians. And so this is the Orange Letter campaign. Um, you can go to uh, globaloutreach.org um, and afr.net forward slash OLC to send letters. So um, this is this is a time to send letters of encouragement and prayer. And uh, what are some guidelines and maybe suggestions for people who, who want to do this, but um, they're not quite sure what to put into a letter? Well, if you're like me, I'm not the best with words on paper. Uh, I'm not a writer. Uh, and a lot of our listeners are probably feeling the same way. These people, they do not need some extremely long, extremely well thought out letter they just need some words of encouragement so if you just take the time and from your heart take time and pray about what you need to say and just let them know that you're praying for them that you love them maybe include some scriptures uh, that have helped you through hard times Um, we have a lot of people that that sometimes their only letter is just a few like a few verses and I'm praying for you and that that is what uh, that is what these persecuted Christians need. So we we only ask that you keep it under 200 words, which the form, if you go to AFR.net, the form that is there um, has everything laid out so you can fill it out. It's super simple and you'll be able to send it in in a matter of minutes. And and this is um, just really a wonderful way to to reach uh, persecuted Christians. And of course, we can always pray for them daily. Um, but to actually send letters of encouragement, I mean, I, I can imagine that this is such a, a wonderful opportunity um, for someone to to just know that that people across the world and Christians are praying for them and taking mm-hmm. the time to send uh, words of encouragement. And and so this is. Um, gone on for a number of years um, here at AFR, and um, and this is my I'm in my second year now of hosting this show on AFR, and so I haven't um, been able to be a part of the the prior campaigns. But um, have you have you had an opportunity to hear from uh, the the partnership organization Global Outreach International about maybe some of the response that they mm-hmm. get from some of the Christians that receive this encouragement. Yes. Well, we're not allowed to hear from a lot of people just due to safety reasons, but we have gotten to speak to people that have received the letters on the field. Um, there was a year that we were able to send to their missionaries all over, and we were able to hear back from that, and they just said it, it just it helped carry them through uh, getting to see those letters. It helped them in their troubles and their trials. They uh, felt encouragement and they could just feel God's love uh, through the letters that were sent to them. And it means more than, you know, you think a letter wouldn't mean as much. And most of the time we receive a letter, it's nice, but it doesn't mean what it does to someone who has been cut off from a lot of the world and from maybe from their family who doesn't agree with them or just all kinds of different situations like that. So just even those words, it just lets them know that they're not forgotten. 
Mm, and, and it is so incredible to know that, you know, we as um, as as the body of Christ through the, the church, which is his church um, in in the whole world, that is everyone who is saved through the finished work of Christ, that we can uh, be an encouragement and and we can uh, pray for and, and encourage and, uh, all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And again, we, we often think of it just as our, our local church and our home communities. And it's very important to be engaged in a local church and uh, be part of that ministry. Um, but part of the mission and uh, the, the truth of uh, what God commands Christians to do is that we should be concerned um, for all of our brothers and sisters in Christ, even across the world. And Cedra, I know even, you know, for myself, um, it, living with all of the, the great inheritance of, mm-hmm. of the blessings that still is uh, living in the United States of America. And, you know, I know we're kind of rapidly escalating to going yes. off of a cliff here, but we still do live um, with such great blessings of liberty um, here in America that other countries don't, especially with what's going on in their circumstances. But even in um, in what I'm dealing with here and in, in my own personal life and, you know, listeners are well aware of, you know, some of the legal challenges and other things. Um, it's always such an amazing, incredible encouragement when I hear from listeners daily who just take the time to, you know, send me a, send me an email or send me a message or, um, and, and just say, you know, we're praying for you and um, give me, you know, scriptural encouragement. I mean, that is so meaningful to me. And some of the messages that listeners have sent have, have literally brought me to tears because I'm just so grateful to know that there are so many people across the country that are praying for me. And I can imagine if um, it, if that wasn't a, a daily occurrence and it was a letter um, going through the midst of what some of these Christians, I mean, so much more than what I've gone through, mm-hmm. how much more it would be an encouragement uh, to them. So, so this is a wonderful opportunity that listeners have. Um, so again, um, you can go to AFR.net forward slash OLC for orange letter campaign. And uh, there is a deadline though. Yes, the, uh, this Friday, February the 16th is the deadline. Now it'll be open a little through the weekend. So if you don't get it in um, by that time, you, you, you can probably still get it in. We just ask that by no later than this Friday, please have your letter ready. Okay. Okay. So then, so go today because today, um, so February 16th, uh, make sure that you are, uh, you are getting your letters in and, and we know you have the rest of the day today and maybe a little bit through the weekend. So uh, make sure that you are getting those letters in. You can go to AFR.net forward slash OLC and, um, you know, and again, keep it to 200 words or less. Um, This is meant to just be um, an encouragement to persecuted Christians. And, you know, what are some of um, maybe the Bible verses and and messages that that come to mind, Cedra, when you think about um, encouraging persecuted Christians around the world? Well, I mean, I guess it just really goes to, I think the one that I see the most is John three sixteen. A lot of people put that because that is the one that means the most to them. And so that's the one that I've seen going through these letters the most. Yeah, and that's such a wonderful encouragement. And I always think of uh, the verse, you know, be, be anxious for nothing, but every, in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God in the peace which passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds 
through Christ Jesus. That's what comforts me in the midst of all of the trials that we all face. So go to AFR.net forward slash OLC. The deadline is today. So make sure you get your letters in in a little bit, maybe through the weekend. But do that today. If you have an opportunity, you can always reach me and my team at Jenna at AFR.net. Make it a great weekend for the Lord. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health cost-sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org/afr. That's chministries.org/afr.